0: Game over! Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all! So say we all! And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show.
1: There is a balance to the universe. The struggle to maintain that balance is the stuff of legends. For there can be no good without evil, no love without hate. Life needs death. Innocence creates lust. There can be no heaven without hell. No light without me. I am darkness. <laughs>
0: everybody, and welcome to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Peron. and Today, we are going to look at some artists that we admire, directors and a couple of actors I throw at the end, that we follow and we kind of idolize and we become their biggest supporters of their work until they disappoint us. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about that feeling you get where somebody just cannot go wrong. They're producing incredibly wonderful material and you are just so hyped about what is coming next. And then when that thing that comes next doesn't measure up to your expectations, your very high expectations, it all kind of comes crumbling down for you. And then you're in search of the next person. So let's get started with high expectations.
1: What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, help I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's horn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> the Force will be with you, always.
0: Sooner or later, you're going to encounter a phenomenon where you might be obsessing over an artist, somebody that you are discovering for the first time. This is somebody that might have been there a while, but you just happen to run into this person for the first time and, and completely be enthralled with their work. Or it might be a completely new person that just out of nowhere comes out and blows you away and you will... Depending on your personality, and this brings us back to the type of person that I am, which has to do with being a collector, a fanboy, somebody who's into genre material, one of those typical traits that we've found that some collectors have is that whole thing about focusing on something and being super, super into it. Especially when you find something that is not very popular, because you kind of create a aura or a feeling of ownership over it, that not everybody has discovered this yet, and you have, so it kind of belongs to you more than anyone else. I know it's a little nutty, but I am familiar with that. I understand that, I know how it can go to excessive levels sometimes, but... When you have an artist that completely blows you away, like I said before, sometimes what will happen is that, and this happens all the time also with musical artists, because I noticed that too, that, you know, you love this album, this is the best album ever, again, whether it's old or new, and then you're like, okay, I just discovered or rediscovered this artist, let's see what they do next. And you go, you move on to their next thing, and it's like, wait a minute. This is nothing like what they just did before. What they did before was awesome, and this is just weird and different. Well, this happens also with filmmakers. Let's take a look at George Lucas, for example. I'm a kid of the 80s. I uh, lived and breathed Star Wars through my teenage years. And then somewhere around 1984, 1985... 1986, when Star Wars completely came grinding to a halt. When Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom had already come out, you know, there was still a little more left of traditional or classic Lucas film. Lucas, if you will. This is a period of time where Lucas decided he was going to take a break and he was going to produce certain things and he was going to do his experimental films that we're still kind of waiting for. And. This was before, you know, the restarting of Star Wars in, you know, way later, (laughs) way later in the 90s. This was a period where a lot of people called the dark times. And I remember some of those big, big things that were on the production slate and that the fan club uh, would promote because the fan club continued, you know, tried to continue as much as possible. But they didn't have Star Wars anymore to rely on. So, it you know, it, it went from the Star Wars fan club to the Lucasfilm fan club. Because that's the only way you can tie into these other things. He got involved, and quite heavily involved, on some projects that were, you know, highlighted as Lucasfilm projects. And I'm going to talk about just three or four of them very quickly. Labyrinth, Howard the Duck, and Willow. With Labyrinth and Willow, those were... Well, first of all, with Labyrinth, it was a a collaboration with Jim Henson. So you figure that would have been, you know, a marriage made in heaven. It did not succeed as much as they wish it would. It is still a very culty kind of film. Some people absolutely love it. You know, you you got David Bowie (laughs) in a film. But it just didn't go there. It didn't, didn't, you know, you didn't get that feel. (laughs) You didn't get the feels, the Star Wars feels. Same thing with Willow. Willow was more of a... I hate to say this, but almost like an attempt to try to do a Lord of the Rings kind of setting. You know, Lord of the Rings hadn't been attempted yet, other than the small animated film from years before. But in terms of a full live feature, that had not been attempted. Uh, We weren't ready for that. But Willow kind of touched upon that whole sword and sorcery fantasy angle to it. And uh, it had a pretty good push behind it, but nope, it, did, it just did not get there. It did not succeed in that manner. You didn't get, again, the Star Wars field. And the other one was Howard the Duck, which, talk about an idea before its time, you know, and this is a Marvel property, if you think about it, attempting to bring a Marvel property into a full live-action environment. This is a couple of years before, obviously, Batman, Tim Burton's Batman completely failed pretty bad bad film but yeah this is like a two-year period i mean you could even throw in there tucker the man and his dream uh, which was a francis ford coppola property again more of a serious film not a fantastical kind of film but also not the kind of gigantic hit that you're expecting when you are dealing with somebody like lucas you are basically waiting for the next Star Wars or the next Raiders. Now, granted, in 89, he did put out Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Spielberg, which was the third. I know some people absolutely love this film. To me, it's the weakest of the three, of the original three I'm talking about. I've had problems with with that film, and even with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, with the humor. I believe they kept... Um- Amping up the humor, and it, that, that does not work for me. Amping up the humor. There's a certain level of humor in these films that I'm willing to accept. Raiders had a perfect pinch of humor in it. With In the Angels and Temple of Doom, I believe that a short round was too much humor. And Willie was way too much humor. And those are the type of things that kind of would bring me out of the movie many times. Same thing with Last Crusade. I enjoyed the the father son dynamic but not the humor the humor again brought it into something different it, it, it is not raiders raiders is more serious but I digress bottom line is that this was one of those situations where you know I started to kind of move away from star wars because of the fact that these other projects that were coming up were not as as great They did not grab me the way that Star Wars did. But Lucas is a perfect example of of how that happened with him, you know, as soon as he was done, you know, with the original trilogy. Another great director that I had a similar situation with, uh, I think, is Ridley Scott. The first Ridley Scott film I saw in a movie theater was Blade Runner. And I, I mentioned this before. I was probably a little too young. I was 12 years old, there were certain things that blew me away about Blade Runner, there are certain things that I did not just like about Blade Runner, and there were certain things that stayed with me, that the more I watched, the more I liked, but it took time, it, it had to kind of ferment, <laughs> if you will. But even with Blade Runner, I would imagine, I also had this weird, how should we say, similar effect that I did when it comes to Lucas, you know, moving on from Star Wars. And that is Harrison Ford moving on from Star Wars and Raiders to Blade Runner. Something just felt weird about this new character. Again, to a 12-year-old kid, (laughs) unsophisticated, not that I am sophisticated now, but immature, whatever we want to call it. I wanted Indy. I wanted Han Solo, and I got Decker. (laughs) Again, I was too young. I wasn't ready for Decker yet. There was a lot going on there. But let's just say that at a certain point, I kind of understood that wait, I didn't love this film, but I kept going back to it. And there was, because I kind of got the fact that there was something special about this film that keeps. Bringing me back to it, time after time after time. So what I did at that point was kind of go backwards. Uh, I hadn't seen Alien in the movie theater, and his first film, The Duelists, uh, which is a completely different kind of film. It's a it's a historical kind of film. So I was able to. I, I think I, I don't know if I either rented Alien or if I watched it on HBO or something like that. And I, I and you guys might have heard the story before. I found out about Alien from a. Documentary called "Terror in the Isles" on HBO, narrated by, hosted uh, Donald Plessence out of all people, and it's about horror films for that time, for for the early eighties, if you will. And it showed clips from the best, you know, horror films ever, and that was one of them. And I had kind of gotten blips of it li- little by little. Again, no internet, uh, really, no television shows that discussed genre you know, specifically in in detail. Best that I had on my hands was Starlog magazine. And yeah, in Starlog magazine, sometimes you would be an article about an older movie, but at that time you just don't have access to it. Well, as the video revolution started and things started to progress and I was able to rent it or I was able to watch it on HBO or whatever, one of the things. So at that point, it's like, wait a minute, this is the same guy that made that film. Okay, I get it. This guy is a huge sci-fi guy and i was able to at some point i think i either rented or bought the duelists which again it did not the film does not match these other two films it is completely a different (laughs) space and time if you will but with a track record of alien and blade runner hearing that he is about to do a fantasy film was like wait a minute (laughs) <laughs> there might be something here. You know, this might be, this guy might be able to now, you know, carve a new path into uh, a nearby genre that has not been exploited at this point. You know, uh, like I mentioned before, the p- people have tried and have not succeeded at that point yet. And his attempt was 1985's Legend. Wow. This is a movie that has certain things that I really liked but the majority of the movie i did not like it feels nothing like his other films it has tom Cruise, a very young tom cruise he had barely i don't think he was a star yet he was an up and coming i think the best thing about legend i would say is tim curry and his character his evil darkness character that makeup job was unbelievable it's just simply incredible they did that and yes the visuals are fantastic he is a visual director that's his trademark his visuals he likes things a certain way and and they look fantastic but the story itself was kind of like muddy and okay and this is fantastical and this is magic and this is this and this is that and i mean i i know it's it's not a great way of describing it and and i'm not doing a You know, 45-minute review on Legend. There's plenty out there for you. I recommend, always recommend, any of these movies I'm talking about, watch them. Figure them out for yourself. Figure out if you like them or not. But Legend just did not live up to what I was expecting or hoping uh, from Ridley Scott. He did follow up Legend with two other movies that I would say kind of got me back on his bandwagon. Slightly, And I also got the feeling that this is a director that likes to mix it up. He definitely doesn't want to stay in one genre for too long. Because he followed it up with Someone to Watch Over Me and Black Rain. And these are two cop crime thrillers that I talked about specifically on a couple of episodes ago. That I started to see bits and pieces of Blade Runner and some other stuff that he's done before in these films. And they do also stand out pretty well as, you know, their own films. Granted, it's a genre that I'm not the biggest fan of. You know, I'm more of a sci-fi, horror, fantasy type of person. But they did really, you know, strike a a chord with me. And... He kind of comes and goes. He kind of has a couple of films that are like what, and then he comes back with a couple of films that are like, oh my god, that's pretty good, <laughs> you know. But talk about a guy that just changes gears. He's always changing gears and trying something different, you know. Up until this day, he just continues and continues to surprise us, you know, every couple of movies with something fantastic. Next up, I would say is James Cameron. James Cameron was my. <laughs> <laughs> My post-Lucas fixation, if you will. This is the director that I completely became fascinated by as I went through my, let's see, uh, 86, or high school through college, through even post-college to a certain extent. So at this point... I think of myself as a little more refined in terms of my my taste and my knowledge. I've been able to study these things on my own, like a maniac, in school as part of my major. You know, I'm firing at all cylinders here as far as the consumption of media and you know the 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 the, the style. Trying to figure out the style of some of these filmmakers, and he was one that completely, boom, hit it there for me. I remember Terminator being talked about on Siskel and Ebert when I used to watch that show and how they themselves were kind of surprised by the fact that they were reviewing a what could be considered a low-budget horror sci-fi film and how effective the film was. And again, I knew nothing of James Cameron. Arnold Schwarzenegger, on the other hand, did pop up in my brain because I did know him from, from Conan. And... He had done some other films at the time. And Schwarzenegger was about to explode at this time. He was about to be the biggest thing in the world. And even though Conan is fantastic and I love it, that was not it. Conan is not the thing that brought him to the front. I would say more it's Terminator. Conan primed the pump and Terminator basically shot him into space. So... With Cameron, you know, he has his own style. And at the time, he was more of a genre guy. Most of his work was genre related. So, I'm talking about Terminator. I'm talking about Aliens. Now, that was a one-two punch as far as I'm concerned. With the possibilities of Terminator, and then you take Aliens, which kind of marries it to Alien, because, you know, we were talking about Scott a few minutes ago. And what an incredibly fantastic job he had done on it. It was just unbelievable what had happened. You know, what he accomplished with that film. He gave me everything and more uh, as far as what I wanted with a continuation of that story, of that franchise, if you will. Obviously, this is before it turned into a franchise. So, three years later, 1989, he puts out The Abyss. And once again, I am hoping... I am expecting to be completely blown away. But, in a way, similar to what happened with, I don't know, I would guess, um, Legend. There were aspects of this film that were great, but there were some other aspects that were kind of like, ah, eh, okay. The film felt like it wanted to be Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and maybe 2001 and a a super great action film (laughs) It, it had the ingredients or it had it wanted the ingredients of all those three things but it didn't really succeed on all three levels the action was fantastic the cast was pretty good except a lot of the cast felt a little bit like he was trying to recreate the cast from aliens You had the, this kind of character and that kind of character, you know, you had the, the Hudson kind of character, (laughs) you you know, there there were so many of those kind of characters, those cliche or, or, I mean, his, within his world. There are those kind of characters. Even even Bill Paxton, who later on in another one of his films, played a comedic character, you keep thinking, oh, he's doing the Hudson thing again. He's the comic relief. He's doing that. Okay, I get it. But with The Abyss, it was just like, oh, man, I wanted to like this film so bad. (laughs) And that's one of those situations where you walk into a theater, and, you know, I usually don't... When I spend money to go see a movie in the theater, I, I... I want to come out saying good things about it, but very early on, I, I unfortunately discovered the, the the reality that yeah, just because you pay for it, it doesn't mean it's going to be good. <laughs> it just does not mean automatically that you're going to be in a good place. And I remember I saw The Abyss at Radio City Music Hall. It was a it was a preview, I think. Or so. I don't know how the hell I got ticket to that, or I was offered a ticket, or I bought a ticket, I don't know how, but I come out of this thing, and I'm like, um, yeah, ah, (laughs) they were such cool elements, Uh, similar to Ridley Scott, the guy is such a visual animal, the cinematography was fantastic, the action was fantastic, some of the characters are so good, some are not, But the whole alien thing just felt a little weak. It felt like, yeah, you want to be close encounters, but nah, it just, it doesn't feel, you don't get that feel, you don't get that, that good feel out of it. Uh, so as far as I was concerned, the abyss, even though it made tons of money, don't get me wrong, it just did not hit it. And it was a disappointment of my expectations being so high, Just which is what's happening in all these examples I'm giving you. I'm walking in to be completely blown away. And it just happens that most times when you're blown away, I don't think you expect it. <laughs> I think it just happens. You get lucky, and a movie just blows you away. But in this particular case, it just didn't work. Granted, he later on did some other films that were fantastic. Terminator 2, uh, an incredible sequel to to Terminator. But then he did True Lies, which was a 100% action film. A little over the top... You know, a little this or that, not my favorite either, but yeah, he kind of comes and goes. He kind of, you know, Titanic, he did something completely different. He didn't go for the mystical, fantastical, you know, sci-fi horror. He went for dramatics and action, and he got it. He nailed it. You know, he did it. Then, years later, he went to Avatar. Okay, he's going back to sci-fi. Technically amazing. Uh, Again, top-to-bottom action, but not exactly you know that original it had feels of 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 dances with wolves it had feel, you know you got the you got the 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 feelings and and the emotions that they were kind of recycled a little bit and i know he's making four more sequels <laughs> he's shooting them right now we'll see what happens with that but yeah another filmmaker that falls under this category i would say is john carpenter the difference being that with john carpenter By the time that I got into his films, (laughs) his decline had already started. (laughs) So Carpenter is more of a, you know, rear view mirror kind of director as far as I can watch his trajectory go up, 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 peak and then decline, decline, decline to where it is now. Most of these films again, because these are horror films and because the majority of them are R-rated films, I wasn't watching these in the theater. And I probably didn't get to watch them until a combination of HBO and home video. Uh, similar to Alien, for example. And by the time you know I got around to watching them at home, it was kind of already too late. So, let me give you a, an example of what I'm talking about. I never saw Dark Star. I still haven't seen Dark Star. I'm, I'm not really d- dying to see it. But anyway, Assault on Precinct 13 is a great, oh, wow, look what this guy can do kind of film. It's got these action sequences, this, this uh, Western kind of feel that you, you do get to feel later on in some of his other films. And it was a sign of things to come. Halloween, Halloween well Halloween is Halloween Halloween is his probably most famous film of all and, and, and how influential it was and how effective it is in, in its simplicity to this day they're rebooting it and remaking it I think we're getting another Halloween I think Halloween Kills is this year's uh, reboot sequel uh, I never saw Elvis The Fog more of a traditional horror film I would say Not, not you know It's got a little bit of Halloween in it... In terms of how horror... They're going in that direction. It's more about ghosts... As opposed to the serial killer. The the, the shape. Uh, This is more of a ghost story. But it's a good entry into his. But again, you're going from... Unbelievably fantastic... To very good. Escape from New York. I guess you can call it sci-fi. To me, it's, it's one of his three... Greatest films. I would go as far as to say... Personally, if I take Halloween, Escape from New York, and what came afterwards, which is The Thing, that's the trinity right there of John Carpenter's work. Escape from New York, I remember watch, watching the commercials <laughs> on TV, but it was R-rated, and again, I was only 11 at the time, so now I wasn't. I don't think I was going to go see a, an R-rated film, even though I did get to see Blade Runner when I was 12. Uh, the Thing, yeah, The Thing for a 12-year-old might have been a little too much. But I know people have seen it <laughs> at that age. I completely appreciated when you know when I was older. And then to me, again, that is the those three films with Escape from New York and The Thing back to back. That's where I wanted John Carpenter to be at. That's where I wanted him to stay at. But unfortunately, like I said, by the time I started watching these films in the you know early to mid eighties, um, he was already technically on the decline stage. He put out Christine, which is a good Stephen King story, turned to a, to a movie. It's not a, you know, He didn't write it, obviously. It's not a Carpenter-written film. Followed by Starman, which was a very successful film. It is sci-fi. It's different. I haven't seen it in a long time, and it was critically liked. It was very critically... I think there were Oscar nominations attached to that film. But to me, it's not your typical carpenter film. It's it's a little too touchy-feely for carpenter, but it works if that's the type of film you like. To me, I can't put it in those in those other three category, you know, with, with those other three films. Big Trouble in Little China. A lot of people love this film and the, and to a lot of people it is just as good as those first three that I mentioned, but to me the humor aspect of it, once again, it's the same problem I had with some of these Indiana Jones films. The humor doesn't doesn't work with me. It just does not gel well with me. Prince of Darkness is a good continuation to his horror. Uh, I see it more on the level of The Fog. You know, I would call it, that's one of his B films. You have your A films, your A level, your B films. Even Big Trouble in Little China is almost a B film. I would call it like a B minus. They Live, again... Sci-fi, great scenes, great things in it, but as a whole, it's still to me a B-film. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, I believe that was probably one of his worst films. I might've seen it once, it was pretty bad. In the Mouth of Madness, I saw that. Yeah, it's 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 um, Prince of Darkness territory, a few notches down. Now you're dealing in the C-level as far as I'm concerned. And pretty much everything that came after that, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., Vampires, Ghost of Mars, The War. All of that is on the C category, so there was a decline. To me, again, his peak hit at the thing, and that was 1982. So by the time I got into him, he had already peaked. So it, it is one of these very tough categories, because unlike some of these other ones I mentioned, or I will mention, there is still hope. For some of these other directors but for Carpenter I, I don't really have hope for him you know he's an older guy you know he's somewhat retired I mean he's been doing a concert I would love to see him in a concert because of his music He's amazing film music and, and and original music but as far as films go I, I don't really have too much hope in him you know you go through these periods and and, and you grab onto these filmmakers but you also have to understand when it's time to let go of these filmmakers. Spielberg is a similar example, except that Spielberg is just a machine. I would say he hit his his prime in the 70s and 80s. And then after that, I would say after Jurassic Park-ish, more or less, he was... Just everywhere. He he was doing every conceivable thing, and he's done every conceivable thing. So he has stepped so many times outside of my comfort genre zone that I cannot kind of put him in this category. He's a little more like Ridley Scott in a way, more or less, because, you know, he's done those things. But the thing about Spielberg is that he's got so many different things in between that I'm not crazy about. The 70s, Jaws, Close Encounters, 1941, who cares? Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Poltergeist, when we talked about this, he was kind of like a ghost director. We don't want to talk about it. Twilight Zone, the movie, who cares? Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, okay. Classic Spielberg, Color Purple. To this day, I have not seen that film. I understand it's fantastic, but it's not genre. It's not what I'm talking about. Empire of the Sun, always. (laughs) Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, uh, again, not the biggest fan. Hook. Jurassic Park, fantastic. Uh, Saving Private Ryan, fantastic. But we're already out of genre world. A- AI, mm, eh. minority report. I kind of like that, but I would not consider that a classic. So as far as I'm concerned, like I said before, 70s and 80s are his, he owns those those two time periods. I think everything ends in Jurassic Park. With that said, he's still a machine. The man is still coming up with films left and right. But because he branched out of the genre so much, I wouldn't, I'm not as disappointed with him (laughs) because he does step out of it so much. I was disappointed with Scott because at the time, that's all he had, more or less. Nowadays, like I said, he's more of of a Spielberg kind of director. He goes everywhere. And I would say that my last attachment that I've had to a director as an adult is To Christopher Nolan. And unfortunately, I think we're already in our breakup stage. (laughs) Christopher Nolan, to me, I've discovered him in 2000, the movie Memento. Again, a movie that there was this buzz about how independent and weird the movie was. The the narrative was so strange that the movie's being told in reverse. Watched it. It blew me away. It was like, wow. And talk about something that is non-genre. Because you know, I'm here screaming about genre this and genre that, but Nolan, just in the manner that he told this crime story, this dramatic crime story in, in that manner, he had he he just got me period boom after that, he did insomnia, which I definitely would say it's not the type of film that will blow you away as memento did, but for example, I would say it's the type of film that you accept as a it's good. Let's move on to the next thing. Not a, oh, this is weird bad. In other words, with Ridley Scott, you had these two great fantastic films, and then this legend thing that kind of like, huh? And then the, the um, Someone to Watch Over Me and Black Rain, which were kind of like, oh, these are pretty good. They're not great, but they're good. Here's what you got with with, with Insomnia, is that you go from great to good. At least you don't have the, the jarring bad film in the middle. He follows that with Batman begins, wow, holy moly, talk about a new way of seeing the Batman franchise revived. And it's like, oh my God, okay, so it's crime, but he's using comic books now in crime. Okay, so he's branching into the fantastical world, the whatever fantasy, sci-fi, whatever you want to call it, comic books. Then he jumps to the prestige Another weird film that kind of falls under the insomnia umbrella, I would imagine, of not fantastic, unbelievably great film like Memento or even, you know, Batman Begins levels, but another good film to add to his repertoire. Then you have The Dark Knight, which it's just to me, again, I'm going to say it for a long time until I get proven wrong. The Dark Knight to me is the essential comic book film, period. It is perfect. The casting, the characters, the, the, the story, it just doesn't get any better than that. And that's really good because that means that you have a director that has a track record before he hits his peak. He hits his peak in the middle. He didn't hit it in his first film or his second film. He hit it somewhere in the middle. And then you get Inception. Oh my God. Again, now you're talking full-blown sci-fi and holy crap. This is a guy that's just, he's just exploding. He has, there's nothing that can stop this guy. And you're like, okay, just bring it on. Give me, whatever you do next, I don't care what it is. It's going to be amazing. It's just going to blow me out of the water. Which is followed by The Dark Knight Rises, which to me was a bit of a disappointment. It is my third favorite of his three Batman films. I kind of get it in terms of, okay, this is where the story is going. I get it. It just didn't hit me that way. And that is the, the beginning of the decline, I think, of him, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, interstellar, it was okay. It was, uh, again, it, it was trying to be a lot. It was trying to be 2001, basically. It was going to re- redefine the, the interstellar, the, the space travel genre, the space exploration genre, if you're whatever. It was okay, it was nice, it was nice. <laughs> you know, I, it didn't blow me away. Dunkirk, another good film, World War II this time around. Again, didn't blow me away, it was good, I enjoyed it. There was definitely his style all over these films. You could feel them, you can you tell in the writing and in the cinematography and everything, it's him. And this last year, Tenant. Tenant was going to kind of bring us back to the sci-fi side of things probably more close to where Inception was. That's, that was the big buzz, that it was like, we're kind of dealing with something more like that. Not so much spacey, but technological sci-fi. And Tennant completely, <laughs> <laughs> completely let me down. And I can't really say, you know what it is? It's like, his films are so beautiful looking and crafted, and the action is Unbelievable. But then his choices uh, of certain things, his certain artistic choices kind of overwhelm you and they take away from all these positives. You know, when you have a good, when you have a perfect film, everything works synchronize everything is synchronized everything works perfectly it's a perfectly tuned orchestra but when you have a so-so film sometimes you can say well this isn't so good but that was so great that it makes up for it you kind of start to make up for certain things that are low here some of the things that are not too good again in my opinion has nothing to do with what this film is or was or should be or it is to you but in my opinion There was such a convoluted story, and the sound was so odd that you couldn't hear certain things. And this is something that happened, I believe, with Dark Knight Rises, with the character of Bane. He deliberately made him sound almost illegible, to the point where I think he had to make some changes to make him a little more coherent. Reluctantly, he wasn't very happy about it. But still, it was a little bit of a, what, what's he saying? What's he talking about? You know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, in this film, in Tenet, and I did a whole review about it, this is where I, I, I finally got that slap in the face that I was waiting for. I, I, I've gotten hints of a, of, of, a, of a decline of Nolan. And, and this was definitely the, the fall. <laughs> the, we saw the rise, the peak, and the decline, and the fall, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, don't get me wrong. You could put out a movie next year and blow me away. But we've gotten to that point again, which is that point that I've been talking about during this particular show of what happens when your go-to artists, creators, they're just not doing it anymore. And I guess that's a that's a normal thing. You can't be on top forever. You know, you th- I think of the 80s, I think of the 90s or whatever. You know, Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, Madonna, you name it. And it's like, well, they're not really putting out any hits now, are they? They're still working, but they don't put out any hits. So, well, Michael Jackson's dead. It's a little difficult. But even then, even while, while he was still alive, there was definitely a decline. A decline, And, a, you know, he was done. He was done. Uh, I mean, Springsteen is doing Broadway shows now, one-man shows, playing his music. And I don't know what Madonna does anymore. Um, but... Yeah, with filmmakers, it's a similar scenario where, you know, at least the, the these, these particular ones I'm talking about today, they're still in the business uh, in, in different forms. I mean, Lucas technically is retired, so odds are he's not going to be messing around anymore with anything. Spielberg, he's still putting out a couple of movies every now and then, so it's like, he's still at it. I mean, he's an older guy, but he's still at it. I don't expect you know, anything amazing, it's just that that's just the way it is. Uh, Ridley Scott, on the other hand, I think he could still surprise us because he still has that, you know, like I said, when he did The Martian, I was like, wow, that's pretty good. It's like, damn it, he can do it. Uh, you know, he's returned to the Alien franchise and blah, blah, blah. Cameron, I don't know, he's locked into these Avatar films and I, I I don't know. That's a big gamble to to push four films. I mean, man, that's a lot of films of something that I don't know if people really are interested in. To tell you the truth, I don't know. Uh, you know, the 3D craze as as ended. You know, that was the other thing about Avatar. Was like it was the first successful real 3D film. You know, that kind of pushed it into the home environment, the home video. And I talked about this before too. I mean, it perpetuated not only movies in the theater. Movies on 3D Blu-ray, movies on TV that you could, you know, certain channels you can but that was very, 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 very slight. And then the whole thing just kind of collapsed. We're we're done with 3D. Now I don't even know if there are any 3D films anymore being shown in 3D. Not, not around here anyway. The the video market has gone out the window. The, the they don't make players, they don't make TVs, they don't they don't make media anymore. That's 3D. So I don't know how he's gonna be able to push, you know, these films. And Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan is just, like I said, he he could he could surprise us at some point. But if you're looking at the tea leaves and if you're looking at the pattern and the trajectory of his films lately, you know, he is on a decline as far as I'm concerned. He's on he's a decline. So we'll see. I, I don't have any other filmmakers I could tell you about that I am actively following in terms of Oh, my God, I can't wait for the next blah, blah, blah film, you know. Because I really haven't been blown away by a, by a film in, a, in, in such a long time. I hate to say this, but, yeah, The Dark Knight was, was very good. Even Memento. Memento was something that completely, like... It, I think Memento was, was, was more of a, of, a, of a shock in terms of, Wow, this is so different. Uh, the Dark Knight was just a great way of packaging a comic book character into realism. And, and that's what I love. I love the realistics. You know, when I watch the Marvel films now, you know, like, like I said, my, my favorite Marvel one is Captain America the Winter Soldier because of that gritty reality-ish kind of thing going on. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this sort of fascination or obsession <laughs> uh, with artists also can carry on uh, with certain actors. Not as much as directors because actors seem to act so much more frequently that the odds of them having some turkeys along the way are very high. Uh, I guess the more successful you are, the more, you know, bad films you'll have under your belt too. Some actors recover it from it very fast and they just keep hit or miss, hit or miss, and, and they make an entire career out of it in terms of volume. But for me, again, as a young kid at the time i did mention harrison ford before yeah i mean harrison ford star wars and raiders of lost ark those were the 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 big gigantor (laughs) you know behemoths that he had and 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 with star wars they they carried on from one to the other you go from star wars you go to empire you go to raiders then you go to blade runner which was kind of like weird uh, even though the movie was also kind of strange and it it, it started getting me all kind of crazy in terms of is this good or is this bad. I can't tell. I'm having issues trying to figure out what I'm looking at here. Uh, But the tone of his character was also not your indie or Han Solo type of character. But again, he kept getting sandwiched in with, you know, that follows up with Return of the Jedi. So you're back to that known character. And then it's followed by Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Again, you go back to that character. So you're still getting the, the Harrison Ford feels in between these little blips here or there. And then you have what I would consider to be one of his pivotal roles, and that is in Witness. Because in Witness, that was his non-genre-defining moment. Um, and it was also enough for me to say, oh, wow, he can do some serious stuff here. And it's good serious stuff. After that, he went just about everywhere with some great and some bad films and his career, you know, you know, hit, (laughs) you know, the big time, you know, in terms of how big he got around that time. Uh, Granted, he ended up kind of riding that wave, which was that post um, witness wave, if you will. All through the 90s, he was a super hot commodity But by the time he got to the 2000s, he was already on the decline. But I would say, yeah, Witness, as far as I'm concerned, that's where he hit his last peak was with Witness. It being a non-genre role, of course. With Arnold Schwarzenegger, again, he's one of these individuals that during a short period of time, he gets kind of locked into the series of films that completely impresses me. Again, But you gotta remember, I'm like, what? 12, 13, 14, 15 years old at the time. Conan the Barbarian wouldn't be one of those films because I kinda caught that one late. I wasn't there in 1982 to see Conan the Barbarian. I got to see it a couple years later. What I did see was The Terminator in the movie theater. But I was able to go back and see Conan. I might've actually, to tell you the truth, I might've actually seen Conan on cable. Because I know that Conan the Destroyer came out next, and I think I saw that in the theater. It was horrendous. And that would have been the moment where I kind of give up on this potential artist that I'm all of a sudden, you know, falling in love with, because Conan the Destroyer was a bad film. It was a bad sequel. But then you have The Terminator, and then you have Commando. You do have Raw Deal, which was another one of those, what the hell is this? Followed by Predator. Again, this guy is giving you the goods every other film. Then you have twins, but then that's followed by Total Recall. So, again, he's he's doing this one step back, two steps forward type of dance. Kindergarten Cop, followed by Terminator 2. And he kind of, again, you know, in my opinion, you know, hit, hits his peak with Terminator 2. You could say True Lies could be there two films later after Last Action Hero... But for me, True Lies wasn't that great. I didn't love it as much. And the last artist that I would also kind of consider to be on this kind of wavelength is Sylvester Stallone. I'm not the biggest Stallone fan around. I have a friend who is a enormous, gigantic Stallone fan, and I'm sure he's got his different periods of the ups and downs of Stallone as far as how he ranks them. I really wasn't tuned into Rocky the early Rocky films to me, Stallone popped up with, I would say he might've been on my radar around Rocky three. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw him on first blood, which was pretty impressive. Again, these, these are, this is cable we're talking about first blood. And then the, and then the idea that there was going to be another version of, there was a sequel coming to first blood. Oh, that sounds interesting. And, in between, he was doing some bad stuff too, like Staying Alive and Rhinestone. and So, believe me, I'm not following him with that much detail. But when you go from First Blood to Rambo First Blood Part 2, that got my attention because I love that film. The action is amazing. And then that was also around the time where you have james cameron with the terminator and he's about to do aliens and his name is uh, you know on the poster as one of the screenwriters of rambo first blood part two so you start i started then to make that connection that the good thing about rambo first blood part two has to do with james cameron obviously you have a great action hero you know a schwarzenegger level kind of action hero and that's the same year that you had rocky four come out again these are these super flashy Rocky films, not the most dramatic of them all, but the more commercially accessible ones, if you will. At the time, he's it's it's out there, it's in your face. And with First Blood Part Two, I couldn't wait for First Blood Part Three. But one of the things that I remember very clearly was that one of the things that was coming next was something called Cobra, and Cobra was going to be a return to the super cop film you know genre and the poster that poster for cobra to me is still a fantastic poster one of my favorite ones it's just a perfect depiction of the cop action hero boom there it is you have a combination of what's almost kind of like a G.I. Joe kind of character with a Dirty Harry kind of character with Stallone's, you know, previous films kind of character all wrapped into this very simple poster of him a red background and he's wearing all black and these mirror sunglasses as far as advertising is concerned, I was sold that was it, that was going to bring the cop genre I guess, you know, the the action cop up to the level of Rambo First Blood Part 2. And that movie was such a disappointment. It was horrible. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty bad. I saw it in the theater. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that was a bad one. But again, my expectations were so unbelievably high at the time. Because I'm coming off of Rambo First Blood Part 2. But two years later, we did get Rambo First Blood Part 3. Or Rambo 3. And it wasn't exactly Part 2. It was a slight decline for Part 2. So... As far as Stallone was concerned, you know, my attraction to his characters lasted a very short time. Yes, he did have, you know, ups and downs and continues to have ups and downs. And to this day, he keeps working and having ups and downs. But I think the only other time where I was actually impressed by him without him having to go back to his previous roles and reviving and rebooting and re-sequeling, you know, whatever you want to call it, was with Copland. He did a movie cop, Copland, that I love, a completely 100% serious film, and he plays one of the characters. He's not the lead, he is one of the characters. And he's, as far as I'm concerned, that's where an Oscar should have been. In copland again not a genre film but yeah that was my uh, my stallone my very short stallone period but i honestly cannot think of an artist a modern artist that i am kind of putting my hopes on anymore maybe that person will come at some point but that person is not here now all right i hope everybody enjoyed today's show We looked at some major, major movie directors and a couple of actors in terms of how we feel about them and how we follow them and how we defend them and make up excuses for them sometimes. But sooner or later, you might find uh, yourself in a situation where you just cannot make up any more excuses and say, you know what, yeah, this was really bad. They will eventually disappoint you. They will eventually put something out that kind of turns you off and then you know you go looking for someone else it's not a new or exclusive phenomenon to genre it happens everywhere as i mentioned it happens to music it happens to just about anything you could think of actors directors you name it and is it a matter of us just kind of lowering our expectations or is it a matter of us just trying to look at their entire body of work to see what direction their careers and their creativity takes. Or are we just overthinking this as we usually do because we are, after all, giant fanboys. So I hope that you guys can relate to this phenomenon. I I hope that it's happened to you. Hey, if it hasn't happened to you, you're probably better off for it because, you know, the ups and downs of fandom could be, you know, very uh, frustrating at times. But it kind of lets you, you know, explore other venues because sometimes you kind of get locked in just like politics or anything else you get locked into your team and your guy and your your director and he's you know that this is my per you know you get that kind of thing and then you kind of close yourself off to all this other world of creativity that's out there that you might really enjoy so thanks again for listening and we will see you soon here at geekfest France. bye-bye everybody
1: She is seductive. She is passionate. She is possessive. She is pure. Evil. She is Christine. A 1958 Plymouth Fury. Possessed by hell. Her previous owner is not alive to warn her present one. Once she lures you behind the wheel, you will be hers, body and soul. There is no place you can hide, no place you can run, and nothing you can do can stop her. Because how do you kill something that can't possibly be alive? Christine, body by Plymouth, soul by Satan.
0: If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com, or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes, at Geekfestrants
1: I don't know what we're yelling about!
0: GeekFest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, Copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit iCrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia-related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.